Good afternoon, everyone. It's good to see you again. A question for you. Imagine if you could read the private messages of a mother to a child. If you could read the private messages of a mother to a child, what would it sound like? I have a few samples for you. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, James is going to be my clicker. So here's one. It says, Dear Little Toad, I haven't spoken to you in such a long time. Are you eating well? Dress warmly and sleep earlier. Otherwise, you're going to get sick. Spend some time for yourself. Don't overdo your activities for church. Hope to hear from you soon. Love, Mom. Here's another one. Dear Big One, You sent so many messages, I can't keep up. I can see you're eating well. Turn on some air conditioning. It's too hot over there. Get out and meet people. Get involved with church activities. Love, Mom. Would you think that this is from the same mother? Yes? No? Would you say they're to the same child at the same time? Something about these two letters seem a little bit like either the, the mother is a bit bipolar or that she's speaking to two different children at two different times. And actually, uh, if you show the next slide, this is my mom. And uh, this is the kind of things that she would say to my sister and me. All right. So if you go back to the, to the previous slides. So... You know, in out of context, if you just read Dear Toad, Toad is not exactly the most flattering, um, you know, nickname for someone. But long story, which I'm not going to share now, uh, my mom does call me her little toad. But it's an endearing, it's a term of endearment. And so um, she calls me Dear Little Toad. And she says, I haven't spoken to you in such a long time. How long do you think it had been since she had talked with me? Two days, exactly right. Two days. And yet for her, it had been such a long time, all right? Um, notice how she's saying dress warmly and sleep earlier because it's winter here uh, in Melbourne. Um, and she's saying don't overdo your activities for church because obviously I'm a church pastor. And so she's saying don't take it easy, spend some time for yourself. Meanwhile, if you go to the next one, dear big one, again, out of context, you would think, wow, she's insulting her daughter and calling her big. But actually, in Korean, she often calls my sister because she's the older one, um, the bigger one. And she says big one, but it doesn't mean like literally big. It's just she means the older one. So, but the literal translation is big one. And I'm the, the little one. And um, she's saying, you send so many messages, I can't keep up. Because my sister like, sends her these text messages. And she's saying, I can see you're eating well. Because a lot of times my sister will, loves taking photos of food and then sends them to my, to my mom. Um, but as you saw in the picture, my sister is very thin. Um, and then my sister's in California, so she's saying, you know, turn on some AC, because my, my sister is very eco-friendly slash uh, frugal, so she won't turn on the air conditioning. So while we were there, we were dying of heat. Um, and she's saying, go out and meet people, because my sister, not that she's an introvert, but that she just moved there recently, so my mom is encouraging her to get out and meet new people. So you see how, um, and this would not have been recent, this would have been back when my sister first moved there within the first week. So you see, it matters when and to whom you're writing, and it doesn't make the person who's saying these uh, inconsistent or somehow crazy. It just means that you have to look in context at things. Otherwise, you could have the wrong idea or the wrong picture of the person who is speaking. And I find that a lot of times we read the Bible as if we can just pick something and read it, and that's just it for all time. And while it's true that the principles of the Bible are universal and you know cross-cultural, etc., you can't simply take 
a verse out and and immediately apply that to the principle. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, for a few weeks in June, Roy and I are going to go through a series called Secondhand Jesus. And the idea is that a lot of times we hear about Jesus or God or things in the Bible from other people, whether it were our parents, whether it's our society, whether it's our school, um, education, upbringing, um, our friends, our church, whatever it may be, we hear a lot about Jesus. And before we had a chance to really fact check things, we kind of just take what people tell us about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, and we just come to believe that it's true. Unfortunately, a lot of what happens is that um, people take things out of context and then it becomes this uh, common knowledge and before we know it, we all think it's fact. But for the next few weeks, Roy and I would like to fact check some of these common beliefs uh, with you. Together we'll explore and look at where did these uh, ideas come from and do they really uh, apply? What is the real principle that we can gain? And one of the ideas that we want to explore, and that's the topic for today, is this idea. Have you ever heard this idea that if you are a church pastor or leader or an elder or someone who's been going to church for a long time, that somehow your prayers are more effective than the prayer of someone who maybe just walked into church that first day? Have you ever heard of anyone saying, you know, oh, I want the pastor to come pray for me, you know, because somehow the pastor's prayers will be more effective. Or perhaps even in your own life, you've thought to yourself, well, my prayer right now is not going to be very effective because I've just messed up and God won't hear my prayers. Where would these ideas come from? You know, a lot of these ideas don't come from a vacuum. They actually have some basis. For example, if you look at the next slides, these are some of the verses that might have been quoted before. See if you've heard this. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Have you ever heard that before? And a lot of people kind of add their own little sentence after that saying, therefore the, the prayers of an unrighteous man wouldn't avail much. That's kind of the thought, the silent thought that goes after that verse. Okay, next verse. This one is Proverbs fifteen twenty nine. The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Okay, next one. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Next one. I'll just read the last portion in verse 11. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Have you heard these kinds of verses before? Now, if you read these verses by themselves, what would be your conclusion? If you sin, God will not hear you. If you sin, God will not hear. Just from these verses. And a lot of times, these verses are taken out of context, and that is kind of the idea that is spread. And even though mentally we might not believe that, when, when it actually comes to that time where we have messed up and it's time for us to go to God, we feel hesitant because in the back of our minds, this idea is suddenly going through our mind saying, you've messed up and God will not hear. God will not hear. Now, what I would like to do is kind of go through a few of these verses. There's a lot more in the Bible, but I've just picked these. And we're going to look at the context of these verses to see what is God really trying to say here? What is the message? And then we can correctly then apply it to our lives. And so, James, if you can go to the next 
first. Uh, next slide, sorry. We're going to look at this one first. But let me ask you a question. I've, I've just given you, you know, a few examples from the Bible, the verses that say that if you're wicked, God does not hear, and if you're righteous, God will hear, right? Can you think of any examples that from the Bible um, or from history or from your own life where actually God does hear the prayers of the unrighteous? Can you think of any examples? Is this really true? When you think about the history of how God has interacted with people, is this true? God does not hear the wicked. God only hears the righteous. Can you think of any examples where God heard the prayers of the unrighteous? What about Cain, the first murderer? He murders his brother Abel. You can't get worse than that when it comes to, you know, in the beginning. Like, he, he kills his brother, and then he, t- he complains to God and says, now everyone's going to be out to get me. And what does God do? He says, you know what? I will listen to you. I'll put a mark so no one kills you. Okay? So God heard his complaint and listened to his request. It wasn't even a request. He was just complaining. God actually gave it to him. Anyone else? A time when God heard the request of an unrighteous person. More just a principle than a story. Okay, all right. Romans 8. Any other examples that come to mind? Jonah. Jonah, yep. So Jonah um, and, and Nineveh, right? If you think about it, Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed and because they were wicked, but then they repent and the whole city is saved. Any other examples? What about Samson? The guy, you know, chose his love affairs over his um, priority with God, but he still cries out to God and says, give me strength again, and God does. Right? Okay. If we, if we think about it, as we go through the examples in the Bible and even in our own lives and in history, the question isn't so much, when does God hear the prayers of the unrighteous? But the question becomes, who is really righteous? Who is really righteous? What does it even mean to be righteous? So for example, in this verse here in the Proverbs, it says, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And what we need to do is to actually look at what does God mean when he calls somebody righteous or wicked? Just like my mom, when she calls me a toad, she's not calling me some insulting name, right? She's she's thinking of an endearing um, term, right? So what does God mean when he says, I don't hear the prayers of the wicked, but I hear the prayers of the righteous? Let's go to the next slide. And this is um, a definition of, um, sorry, before I go into definition, there's a few things that we have to keep in mind. Righteousness, a lot of times when we think of righteous, we think it's right doing. So if someone is a righteous person, that person does the right thing. And if someone is unrighteous, they do the wrong things. But what would make somebody righteous? Do they have to do the right thing six out of ten times? Seventy percent? Ninety-nine percent of the time? What is a tipping point in which someone is wicked and when someone is righteous? At what point, you know, if someone does ten good things in that day, is that person righteous? 
or if they refrain from doing wrong when they could have, does that make them righteous? You see how when we come when it comes to defining righteousness by our works, or even um, the refraining from the wrong works, it's very difficult to say at what point. And actually, the original definition of righteous is actually morally perfect. Morally perfect. So if you were to, again, think about, well, who is then truly righteous? All of a sudden, you're going to have a difficult time defining and finding out someone who is. So, this is what the Bible says, Ecclesiastes 7.20, For is, there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. So Ecclesiastes, King Solomon wrote this, is saying, there isn't a single person who is righteous. Next verse is from Romans. Um, it says, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Okay, so all of a sudden we've been left. God had said, I, I'm far from the wicked. I hear the prayers of the righteous. But now we find out that nobody is righteous. Does that mean God doesn't hear anybody's prayers? But again, you can think of times when God does hear prayers in our own lives and in the examples of the Bible. So again, we need to figure out, okay, what is God talking about? So if you read on in Romans chapter 3, this is what it says. But now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, but all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul, writing here in Romans, says, No one is righteous. Everybody has messed up. All have sinned. But God treats everyone who has faith in Jesus as righteous. He says, um, if you continue to the next slide, he says, through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness in passing over sins that happened before during the time of God's patient tolerance. He also did this to demonstrate that he is righteous in the present time and to treat the one who has faith in Jesus as righteous. So now we get to finally define what God means when he says righteous. When God says, I hear the prayers of the righteous, he's not saying that he only hears the prayers of those who do right. He's saying he hears the prayers of those who have faith in Jesus. Because those who have faith in Jesus are treated as if they are righteous. Does that make sense? So then when we go back to the idea of the wicked, the righteous are those who have faith in Jesus, even though they've messed up. The wicked are those then who refuse to have faith in Jesus, and especially after they've already been um, exposed to the love of Christ. Now, looking at um, this context a little bit more, if we go back to Proverbs uh, chapter 15, the next slide. In that very same chapter where it said, God is far from the wicked, this is what he says. He who disdains instruction despises his own soul, but he who heeds, heeds rebuke gets understanding. The fear of the Lord is instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. In other words, this Proverbs is saying that those who actually are willing to change, those who are willing to humble themselves and say, yep, I've messed up. I want to change. 
I, I recognize that I am a sinner, are the ones that are called wise and also called righteous. Next slide. And this is what um, it also says in the same chapter. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. And so within the same, same Proverbs, it's making clear when it says that God is far from the wicked, it doesn't mean that he doesn't care. And it doesn't mean that he has removed himself from everyone who's messed up. Instead, it's just reiterating that he hears the prayers of those who are willing to change. And he's still watching over both, but that there is distance between himself and those who refuse to come to him. Let's look at uh, another context. If you go to the next slide. This is in uh, Luke chapter 6, and this is when Jesus is talking to the disciples. Um, and we won't read the whole thing, but if you just follow from verse 27, he says, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Let's skip down to verse 32. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. That last verse, be merciful, for just as your Father is merciful, is actually the key to understanding this, what seems like inconsistency, where God says, I am far from the wicked, I hear the prayers of the righteous, and then he actually goes around listening to the prayers of those who have messed up. The answer and the reason to that is because God is merciful. You see, God doesn't have to hear the prayers of the wicked. He's not required to. But he chooses to because he's merciful. He says that he treats, he's kind to the unthankful and the evil, as well as he's kind to those who are uh, grateful recipients of his love. And so God is saying, look, I, I listen to the prayers of the righteous and I listen to the prayers of the unrighteous. So then why did he say that he is far from the wicked? Why does he then um, say in the next slide, this is one of the verses we looked at earlier, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Why do we have verses like that that seem to contradict the idea that God will hear? Why doesn't God just continually say, no matter what, I'm there for you. No matter what, talk to me and I will grant your request. Why doesn't God just simply say that? Even in this psalm, when you look at the next few verses, um, James, if you can go to the next slide, it says, Blessed be God who has not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. So once again, the psalmist is saying, if I have iniquity, he's not going to hear me, but thank God, because of his mercy, he did hear me. And when we try to understand what happened earlier, uh, David was saying Nineveh was an example, right? Nineveh was supposed to be destroyed. God said, in 40 days, I'm going to destroy it. But when the Ninevites repented, God didn't destroy it. Does that make God a liar? What do you think? Does that make God a liar? He said he was going to destroy it, but he didn't. We look at that and say, well, no, God wasn't being a liar. He was being merciful. Right? In the same way, when we look at that psalm that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, he will not hear, God can say, 
when you have sinned your heart, I will not hear. But then he can be merciful and still listen to you. Does that make sense? Just as God can say to Nineveh, I'm going to destroy you. But then when they repent, he doesn't destroy them and he ends up saving them. Let's look at a different example. Next slide. Um, oh, this is just another verse to reiterate what I just said about he's not a liar. It says, the Lord isn't slow to keep his promise, and this is in context of his second coming, as some think of slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to change their hearts and lives. So again, it's saying it's not that God is a liar. It's not that he's slow. It's not that he's delaying. He just is merciful. He wants everyone to be saved, and so he will delay carrying on his judgments, right? And he will give you a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance and a million chances um, because he wants you to change. But at some point, the question becomes, well, how many times is that mercy given? Because if he never, ever executes that judgment, then he would be a liar, right? If he continues to say, you know, if you are far from me, these are the consequences, but then those consequences never, ever come, right? And his mercy is given indefinitely, then he would be a liar. Let's look at an example um, in the Bible about how his mercy and his justice work. This is uh, one of the verses we looked at earlier. And let's look at the context. This is the Lord talking to Jeremiah. And he says, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them, which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. All right, so let's see how this actually spanned out in history. We can go to the next slide, James. Here's a little history lesson. So here, uh, this is um, around 612 BC. There's drama in the ancient world because, and you just have to, uh, James, go one by one. So this was the king of um, Nineveh, all right? And he was ruling the Assyrian Empire. And then next slide, this is the king of Medes. And he was tired, his name was Cyaxerus, and he was tired of having to send taxes every year to that guy. Every year he would have to pack up the silver, the gold, the you know food, the fruits, and he would have to send shiploads of them um, or, you know, camel loads of them over to that king. So not only is he getting antsy, but next slide, this king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar of, of Babylon, is also getting antsy because he has to pay taxes. And so the two of them decide, you know what, let's make an alliance. And so his son, Nebuchadnezzar, marries his daughter, Amatir. They get married. And together, they uh, form that alliance, and they march against Nineveh, and they destroy the city. So now Nineveh um, is ruled by the Babylonian Empire. Okay. Now this guy, Pharaoh Nico, is getting very, very nervous because the Assyrian Empire was a big empire and he's now afraid that they're going to come after him. And so he decides, I'm going to be proactive and I'm going to go strike um, the Babylonian Empire. I'm going to go to, to, to Babylon. But the problem is that in order for him to go from Egypt up to Syria, you see that little land, Jerusalem. He has to go march through there. So then he asks the king of Jerusalem, Jehoiakim, hey, can I just go through your land? I have, you know, problems with those guys up there. Can I just pass through your land? 
Now, this is where, if, and you can look at this history in the books of Jeremiah, etc. And in that point, Jeremiah, who's a prophet during this time, says to King Jehoiakim, this is what God is saying. Let them pass through. Okay, let them pass through. Do you think Jehoiakim listened? No. So he's like, no, you cannot go through my land. So then Pharaoh was like, okay, then I'm going to fight you first. And so then they go to a place called Megadon, and they have this ginormous battle from which we get Armageddon. And they have this battle, uh, I think it was in 605 BC, and Jehoiakim gets killed. All right. Battle, Jerusalem, uh, the Israelites lose terribly. And Pharaoh uh, continues up because he's destroyed their army. So now everyone was upset. Why, God, you weren't with us, right? And then Jeremiah says, it's okay, everyone calm down. Just, you know, uh, Nico goes up and the Babylonians completely wipe them out. And not only do they wipe them out, what happens is um, that guy, Pharaoh Nico, when, when his army is being destroyed, runs away. And I don't know why, but he runs to Jerusalem. He thinks he can hide there. Well, that means the Babylonians come down to Jerusalem to capture him. And of course, while they're there, like, hey, we're going to plunder what's here as well. And at that point, Jeremiah tells everyone, it's all right, calm down. God is going to protect us. Don't do anything. And the new king at that time is like, no, we have to make an alliance with Egypt. Even though they've just been beaten by Egypt. I don't understand the rationale, but they decide we're going to go to Egypt. We're going to get Egypt to help us, and we're going to fight against the Babylonian king. Um, as you can imagine, Jeremiah is like, no, please don't. But they don't listen, and they actually burn up the scroll that Jeremiah writes. He's, he writes this long warning, the he, you know, dramatic ripping and burning of it. And they're like, no, we're going to go with Egypt. So they go with Egypt, and guess what happens? The Babylon Empire is like, what are you doing? So they come down again, and they besiege Jerusalem a second time. After that happens, the people are again crying out, I can't believe that happened. And meanwhile, Jeremiah is like, guys, I'm telling you, God is saying, don't keep this alliance with Egypt. Just calm down. God is going to take care of us. Don't worry about what the other empires are doing. But they don't listen, and they're supposed to pay taxes to the Babylonian um, emperor, because now they they're the, um, the vassal, and they refuse. The king's like, I'm not going to send my taxes over to uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah says, no, God is telling you, go ahead and send the taxes. I'm going to take care of you, but you do that. They refuse, and Nebuchadnezzar, after a few years of not receiving any taxes, is like, what's going on? So he goes down again. All right. So he goes down there three times, and he's getting sick of it. So the third time he goes down there, he destroys the city, destroys the temple, takes all the people back to his empire. Now when that happens, and by the way, the previous king had thrown Jeremiah into prison because he didn't want to hear Jeremiah anymore. He just um, wanted to lock him away. Jeremiah, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar actually releases Jeremiah from prison, because he knows that Jeremiah was on his side. He was trying to you know, keep the Israelites from rebelling. So he says, you know what? You can come back to Babylon with me, and I'm going to treat you like a prince. But God tells Jeremiah, no, I want you to stay with your people. So Jeremiah stays with the people, and, and Nebuchadnezzar had taken pretty much everybody back to Babylon except for the weak and the elderly and the sick. So then Jeremiah stays with this very small remnant of, you know, a very small, vulnerable population. And you would think that by this point, they would have learned their lesson. But instead, 
When Jeremiah warns the new governor of Judah, Gedaliah, that an evil soldier is going to betray him, Gedaliah does not believe him, and guess what? He does get killed. And at that point, um, he had been set there by the Babylonians. The Babylonians come back, and they actually um, are about to even take care of the real remnant people. So the little remnant people are frightened, and they say, you know what, we're going to flat, uh, basically um, run away and escape to Egypt. They keep wanting to go back to Egypt. That problem never went away. So they're like, no, we're going to go back to Egypt. And God again tells Jeremiah to tell the people, no, stay here. Uh, you think that he's going to come kill you, but I'm going to make sure you're not killed. It's going to be okay. But do they listen? No. They run away to Egypt, and they force Jeremiah to go with them. And we never hear about Jeremiah again. Poor guy, right? Stinks to be a prophet in those days. And so, how many times is that now? That God, through Jeremiah, had warned them again and again and again and again. And that verse earlier where God had said, you're going to cry to me, I'm not gonna, but I'm not going to hear you anymore. Well, God delayed, 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 you know, um, completely delivering them to the Babylonians as much as possible, but they just never got it. They just never got it. And finally, he does allow them to be scattered. And, and can you imagine how Jeremiah felt? You know, he had been thrown into prison. No one listens to him. They burn up and rip up the things that he writes. Um, they don't listen to his scribes and, and little tutors either. He sent them as messengers and they get thrown into prison. At the end of all this, he writes a book called Lamentations. Have you ever heard of that book? And the book of Lamentations um, is a really sad book. <laughs> If you read that book, it basically um, is a lament. And in the, in the Hebrew canon, the book is called Alas. So can you imagine? Turn to Alas, chapter 3, verse 2. And that's basically what this book is all about. It's, it's a book of mourning. Um, and if you just read, and I just put a few verses up on the screen. Um, oh no, this is the beginning, chapter 1, verse 1. Oh no, she sits alone, the city that was once full of people. Once great among nations, she has become like a widow. Once a queen of her provinces, she has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night, her tears on her cheek. None of her lovers come for her. All her friends lie to her. They have become her enemies. And the book just continues. It gets worse from there. And it's this, it's this sobbing and it's this heartfelt bitterness that this has been the fate. But something that's interesting about this book is that this book is actually um, four chapters of acrostic poems. Um, with each of the verses starting with one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And then the fifth chapter is a prayer. And the entire book is in the meter of um, a pattern called the Kina meter. And basically, it's just three breaths in, two breaths out. You want to try it with me? Ready? Go. Guess what that sounds like? It's, it's a sigh. This whole book is in the meter of a sign. He's like, and then, okay, that, that's the whole rhythm and meter of this, of this book. Um, and basically, it's the lament of Jeremiah because he's just like, they wouldn't listen. And this is what happened. And he's just sobbing and lamenting. But another interesting thing about this book and about the other books in the Old Testament is that when the Hebrew... Um, literature, um, in the Hebrew literature, there's a, is a pattern or a structure called chiasm. And what that basically is, is in the Hebrew um, language, 
and culture, a lot of times they would write uh, a piece of literature and they would put the most important thing in the middle. It, it's like a cross. And the things on the edges would kind of match and the middle one would be the most important. And that's why it's a chiasm, like a cross. In other words, you know, when uh, Westerners often tell a story or write an essay, usually the most important part is the ending, right? So you'll watch a TV show or you'll read a book and you can't wait to get to the end because that's when, you know, the real pow is going to come. That's going to make everything make sense. In the Eastern mind, a lot of times, the most important part is in the beginning. And then they just repeat it over and over and over and over again. So like my parents, if you ever hear Asian parents giving advice, right, it's one way to put it, they'll say something and they'll just repeat it over and over and over and over again because that's how their minds work. In the Hebrew mind, that was, that was kind of like that. It was like that, say it and repeat it. But also another structure was say something, and then in the middle, boom, you give the important um, kind of the, the climax, if you will. And then the rest, it kind of just parallels how you built up. And so oftentimes, if you look in the book of Job, for example, you'll find in the middle you know, of Job's complaints and the friend's bad advice, and in the middle of all that, Job chapter 19, you hear that wonderful verse, for I know my Redeemer lives, and on that day I will see God face to face. In the middle of um, lots of books, but here in the middle of Lamentations, then, crying, bitterness, sadness, I can't believe this happened in Jerusalem, I can't believe there's nobody to help her. And then, if you go to the next slide, this is the smack middle of Lamentations, chapter 3, verses 21 to 23. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. And you know why Jeremiah could say that? In the middle of the ruins, writing this book of Lamentations, seeing the smoke, and knowing that all his people had been taken either to Babylon or fled to Egypt. How could he say this? How could he say great is his faithfulness? And it's because, smack in the book of Jeremiah, guess what's in the middle? If you go to the next slide, there's a prophecy that God gives Jeremiah. While everything is going chaotically, while no one is listening, this is what God says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. You see, even while the people were not listening to God, even during the time when they kept rejecting his advice over and over again, while they were still wicked and unrighteous, God gives this amazing prophecy and promise that he's going to bring them back and that he's going to hear their prayers. He says, there will come a day when you will seek me. There will come a day when you will look for me, when you will pray to me. And he says, in that moment, I'm not going to say, what took you so long? Or, no, I'm not going to listen until X, Y, Z. He says, on that day, I will be found by you. He says, on that day, I will hear you. And in anticipation of that day, I'm going to put things into place so that you can come back here, even though you don't deserve it. He already has a plan in place. 
I wonder if maybe some of us are in a place of lamentations right now. Perhaps through our own mistakes, we're in a place of brokenness. Perhaps because of others' mistakes and others' actions, we are in a place of brokenness. Perhaps we have lost a loved one through relationships or through sickness or through separation. Perhaps we've just gone through a series of unfortunate events. I don't know exactly what's going on, but perhaps you are in this place of lamentations where you can see the smoke of something gone bad. But I just want to reassure you that even in that place, we can have reason to hope because our God hears the cries of our hearts. Deserving or undeserving, it doesn't matter. He hears the unrighteous cry and the righteous cry. Because God is not limited like we are. He doesn't have to um, only do good to those who obey and bad to those who are rejecting him. God in his mercy chooses to be kind to the just and the unjust. And God in his mercy, even though there may come times where he does discipline, like we saw with Israel, he does allow them to be carried captive over time. But he delays that judgment as much as possible in hopes that someday we will cry out to him. So that one day when we do, he can be found by us. And that's a promise that we can claim. It's a hope and of a God that loves us so much that whenever we are willing to go to him, he is already willing and ready and able to not just listen to our prayers, but give us so much more than we deserve. That's the story that is repeated throughout the Bible. If you think about the prodigal son, right? It's a story that some of us know of the guy who took what his father had, went away, wasted it all, Deserved to be at least admonished, if not cut off from being family. And yet when he comes back, the father doesn't just forgive him. Forgiveness is one thing, right? The father doesn't just say, all right, I'm not going to hold it against you. No, the father does so much more than that. The father goes out running to meet his son, embraces him, hugs him, kisses him, puts the best robe on him, puts the best sandals on his feet. There was a party for him. I mean, can you imagine? You do the worst thing possible, and instead you get rewarded. Right? That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God that says, I'm far from the wicked, and I hear the prayers of the righteous. But when you actually look at his actions, he's a God of love who actually says, yeah, I say that. And yes, it's true. One day justice will come, and one day that discipline will come so that you can come to me. But I'm going to delay that as much as possible so that you can cry out to me, and I will hear your cries, and I will answer you, and I will be found by you. You know that verse, James um, chapter 5, verse 16, that said, the effective, fervent prayers of the righteous man avails much? That translation is uh, not the best. The, a better translation is uh, the common English version. I think I have it on the screen. Yep, It says, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. And based on the Bible's definition of righteous, right? The righteous is not those who do right. The righteous is those who have faith in Jesus and his righteousness. And so if you kind of put yourself in there, in other words, any one of us, right? At any time, when we choose to reach out to God, no matter how deserving or undeserving we may be, that prayer is powerful and what it can achieve. And because God has already promised that when we seek Him with our hearts, He will be found by us, 
one way that we can have a first-hand knowledge of Jesus instead of just a second-hand knowledge is if we go to Him just as we are. So many times we're afraid to go to God because we think, oh, you know what? I just don't feel like I deserve to go to church. I don't want to be a hypocrite. And we, just, we, we don't want to go to God or church or mingle with other Christians because we feel this guilt. But when we look at how God treats individuals and what God really meant in context when he talked about all those verses, what God really wants for us in order to know him personally is just go to him as we are. And he says, when you cry out to me, in whatever state you are, whether you're Samson, the middle of, you know, holding two pillars up with your chains, knowing that you're guilty, or whether you are Peter, who has just betrayed Jesus three times, no matter where you are, when you cry out to me, I will be found by you, says Jesus. And that prayer is going to be powerful in what it can achieve. And so I want to challenge you and I want to encourage you um, that you can have a first-hand knowledge and experience with God if you're willing to reach out to Him and cry out to Him just as you are and believe in faith that God is going to hear. And so may that be a challenge for you today. And as we discuss further, um, may it further um, become truth in your mind that God hears the prayers of the unrighteous and the wicked, including ourselves. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father God, I just want to thank you for your great mercy that even though we... Um, are undeserving, and even though we are far from what we would consider righteous, that you consider us righteous um, because of what Jesus has done. And I just pray that um, anything that is hindering us from coming to you will be taken away, and that, Father, we would have the courage to get to know you firsthand ourselves by coming to you just as we are and by talking to you, whether we're angry, whether we're bitter, whether we're in doubt, whether we're confused, that we would go to you directly and that as we talk to you and pray to you, Father, as you said, that you will be found by us. And that, Father, having that firsthand knowledge of you, we would be able to say that we have touched, we have seen, we have handled ourselves, and that prayer would be uh, truly answered. And, Father, um, as we discuss further in our groups, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to give us wisdom and help us to explore further what it means to know you. I pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.